week's message was, uh, it's a little bit different. It was a little bit difficult to write. I'm not sure if that was because of the difficulty of the passage itself, which it can be hard to interpret. Um, or it was because it, it feels like there are implications of the passage for my own life, uh, conviction in my own life. Or because I feel like there could be implications for our church as well in terms of how we approach the Lord and just reminders of how we need to approach him in worship. Today, we're going to be talking about the moment that Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem from John chapter 2. And in John 2, 12 to 25, we read this. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This was after Jesus had turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana, as we talked about last week. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Here we find Jesus cleansing the temple courts in the house of God, and oftentimes when we hear this passage used, I think we use it as an excuse for our own preferences or our own anger. In fact, usually when I've heard this passage referenced in passing, someone will be excusing or defending their anger. Well, even Jesus got angry. He made a whip and drove people out of the temple as if the fact that Jesus was angry automatically means I'm right in my anger. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, there's quite a distance between me and Jesus or you and Jesus when it comes to the justification of our anger, and so we shouldn't use the passage flippantly like that. Sometimes I've even heard people talk about using this passage for instituting their own preferences for worship in a church. I don't like that song. I would prefer to sing songs like this. I'd like to use this book, this hymnal, this translation of the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, since Jesus cleansed the temple, we all need to cleanse the temple. That way, my preferences can be instituted in worship in the church. I don't think that that's what this passage means either. So what does it mean? How should we come to understand it? I think maybe the place to start looking would be in those last couple of verses where it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Entrust is the same word as the one translated believed in the previous verse, so you could simply understand it as this. Many believed in his name, Jesus did not believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. 
I think that if we're going to look for a place to apply what this passage means, it would probably start with us in our hearts, not thinking I'm justified in what I think about somebody else's church practices or with what song we sang or Bible translation or whatever it might be, that I want to cleanse that, I want to clear it, not thinking that my anger is justified, my ways are justified by a passage of Scripture, but by saying Jesus knows what's in my heart And this passage warns us that he doesn't just believe in us based on what we think or what we see. We believe in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we're justified in all that we do. And so I think in this passage we would find this encouragement that you should be consumed with zeal for God's house, but that Jesus challenges us on what that means. The word of God challenges on what does it mean to be consumed with zeal for God's house? Does it mean my preferences must be instituted, my thoughts must be followed, my ways must be, must be used? Does it mean that worship as I conceive it is right, or is there something more? You should be consumed with zeal for God's house, so let's see how this passage would lead us to understand that. Being zealous for God's house starts with pure Worship. If you want to be consumed with zeal for God's house, you can offer pure worship. This story isn't just about Jesus being angry with something that was wrong. As with the stone water jars that he used in the miracle of turning water into wine, Jesus, through this miracle, is claiming that he is replacing something that is old, that is empty, and that is broken. Oxen, sheep, pigeons, and money changers were a necessary part of temple worship. Uh, Pilgrims would travel from all over the Roman Empire. They would come to worship God in the temple, and it was, you know, it was very, very difficult to expect. They were going to bring animals with them to offer and sacrifice, so it made sense to have a place where they could purchase sacrifices near the temple so that they could worship God there. The money changers were present because every Jewish man was required to pay a tax for the upkeep of the temple. And money changes were needed because some of the coins weren't pure, and so they needed to verify the purity of the the metal, and also because most people carried Roman coins, which would have had an image on them of Caesar, and those were considered idolatrous, and they wouldn't accept them as the temple tax. And so they would take the images of Caesar and exchange them for a kind of coin that didn't have an image imprinted on it to pay the temple tax. And Jesus wasn't opposed to either one of these things. Jesus himself participated in sacrifice. We find in other places in the gospel, Jesus himself pays the temple tax. So why was he angry with them? He was upset about the location these exchanges were taking place. They were happening in the temple, likely in the court of Gentiles. And this was not only a distraction from true worship, but consider the possible implications of what Jesus commands. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Notice, Jesus doesn't just say, stop selling things in the temple, as if, you know, if we have a sign-up sheet in the lobby or something, or you had a bookstore in a church, that that's the same thing. I don't think that it is. Jesus says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make this place a market. And there's a subtle difference between those two statements, between saying, don't sell things and don't make it a market. The subtle difference may point to how people began to think about the temple and worship of God as they came in. Rather than a place of humble worship and prayer, perhaps people began to think of it as a place of transaction. You go to the temple, you buy something, and you offer it to God. And what if this 
this whole practice began to influence them to think that their relationship with God was a transaction. Rather than coming to offer themselves in worship, they came to cut a bargain with God. The temple became a salve for insincere hearts. And while Jesus objected to the place of the animals were sold and, and money was ex- exchanged, it seems that part of that objection was that the nature of what was being done may have led people to believe that their relationship with God was transactional. A relationship in which you went to the temple to buy God's approval. And of course, you can't do that. David wrote in Psalm 51, 16 to 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In Mark 12, 38 to 34, or 28 to 34, a scribe approaches Jesus and asks, what is the most important commandment? Jesus tells him that he should love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that the second greatest is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe responded by saying, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The trading in the temple indicated that worship had been reduced to money and animal sacrifice. It had become transactional. But pure worship doesn't come from a transaction with God. It comes from a humble heart that loves him. And when we make worship about a transaction, we believe that we give God something, and so he accepts us, or he gives us something, or he answers our prayers. I give you time on Sunday morning. I put my money in the offering. I go through the motions. I sing the songs, and so God will bless me. God will save me. God will approve of me. God will answer my prayers. We mistake the essential nature of our relationship with God. We begin to think that God approves of us just just because we're in church. But listen to the warning the prophet Jeremiah gave to God's people. He says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Consider the interaction Jesus has with the Jewish leaders. They want Jesus to show, him, show them some sign, some proof that he's got the authority to do what he did, some right to clear the temple. It was a bold move, after all, on Jesus' part to go into the temple and clear it. They wanted some kind of miraculous evidence that he was qualified, and he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Herod the Great began building that temple before Jesus was born, 46 years earlier, he had begun that project. And here they think Jesus is claiming he's going to tear it down and raise it up again. They were befuddled by this. And of course, he meant something much more difficult. He meant that if they killed him, which they would, he would rise on the third day, which he did. Jesus was then claiming to replace the temple. Remember what we read in John 1:14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Dwelt means pitch a tent. It was the word used for the tabernacle, the the precursor to the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And what the Jews missed 
was that the nature of their relationship with God was not one in which they could make transactions with God in order to curry his favor, but one in which God had sent his son to live among us and die for us so that we can be right with him. In Jesus, God came into his temple, the place where God was supposed to live, and they didn't recognize him. Their worship was corrupt. Jesus, the image of God, comes into his own temple and they fail to recognize that the presence of God is there among him. Those sacrifices they were offering were there to point people to God's mercy and grace and ultimately to point people toward Jesus, but they had made them a means of purchasing God's favor. So rather than actually loving God and living in a manner that pleases him, they went through the motions of worship and claimed that God would bless them because they were in the temple of the Lord. I wonder if our hearts sometimes do this. That we sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that our worship is pure when it's just going through the motions. If we have sometimes come to believe that when we come to church or when we pray or when we do a devotion or we read God's word, that we are transacting with God as if our actions offer something to God so that he will give something back from us. But that is not how you have a relationship with the Lord. It's true, you should worship God, you should pray, you should read God's word, but that's not a transaction between you and God, it's a loving response to what he's done for you. In fact, the way that you were saved defies this very thought, because you were not saved by offering something to God. In fact, the scripture says and makes very clear, you had nothing to offer to him. You have nothing he needs, you don't have anything that he can use, you've got nothing to exchange with God. And so what did God do because he loves you? He sent his son Jesus to die as the sacrifice for your sins, taking on himself the, the wrong that you've done, taking on himself the punishment for your sin and the wrath of God that should have been poured out on you. God paid the price for you. And so when you come to God, you don't come with any bargaining chips. You don't show up and say, I can buy this little thing out there, come in here, and I can worship the Lord, and then he owes me something. He owes you nothing because your salvation is all of him all the time. His grace has been poured out on you. His love and mercy have been given to you. And that is a gift. And so he owes you nothing. But how many times, I wonder, do our hearts go through the motion of thinking, I've come, I worship, God owes me. I'll go through the steps, I'll do what I do, I'll work the habits out that I have always worked out, and our heart is not in the worship of God. We don't come like David, who recognized, if you wanted sacrifices, I would bring them, but that's not what you want. What you want is a humble and contrite heart. What you want is me coming to worship you with all that I have, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, you desire that I would love you. I wonder if Jesus came into this temple, the temple of God here at Bethany, of God's people gathered, what would he drive out? What transactional attitudes, what distractions, careless rituals would he drive out of our lives so that we can worship in spirit and in truth? Zeal for God's house begins with pure worship. Jesus knows our hearts, and he exposes our motives. Worshiping God is not a transaction to secure us against God. 
It is a relationship that draws us near to him. And we have to remember that. Worshiping God is not a transaction that secures us against God. If you grew up in another religion, you grew up in a cult, you were part of Catholicism, whether they taught it intentionally or not, you may have gotten the idea that what you were doing was you were bringing something to God that you could offer to him that secured you against him. You offer him something so that you, can, you don't have to be under his wrath anymore. You give him something so that he won't be on your back, he won't be on your tail, he won't chase you anymore. You're trying to pay him off to get rid of a debt. You cannot do that, and the gospel is not about that. The gospel says that the debt you owed, Jesus paid when he died on the cross, and that's the only means of salvation. And so you can't transact with God. And, and your worship is not to secure yourself against him. Your worship is drawing near to him because you've been invited into his presence by Jesus who says we can confidently approach the throne of grace now, not by our own merit, not by our own works, not because I'm righteous, but because God has made the way through Jesus and I'm righteous in him. And pure worship extends to clean hands. You can cleanse your hands Transactional, ritualistic religion prevents us from experiencing the depths of God's grace because we think we're buying something from God. We miss that salvation is all by God's grace. Ephesians 2.8, the apostle Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And when we neglect God's grace, we miss his love. We think we've earned something, but love that you have earned is not nearly as sweet as love freely given. Think of it this way. Imagine one of those stupid movies where they got the, the, the dumb dad who's always trying to push his son to be the greatest sports hero ever, and, and you know, the, the son misses the home run at the end of the game, and he comes off the field, and he's, you know, he's like, uh, you're a terrible son, I hate you, and, and I, he walks off and rejects him, right? And if that son had hit the home run, his dad would have loved him, right? I love you, you're great, awesome, cool. That kind of love pales in comparison to the love of a dad who says, hey, you're still my son, who cares, it's a baseball. Like there are bigger things in life, right? I mean, there are bigger things than a ball going over a fence. That's a pretty minor little thing in the grand scheme of life. And the love of a father who understands that, how much sweeter is that? And what we so often want to do with God, though, is transact with him. Where we come and we say, God, I did this for you. God, I was this good this week. I've done these things for you. God, will you receive me? And we miss out on the real love of God, love that we don't think we earn, but love that allows us to be transformed beyond what we can do in our own power. God's love and grace change our hearts, and when we have a transactional attitude toward worship, there's no awe at what God has freely done for you through Jesus because you think You've done something to earn God's love. You think of church or your relationship with God, like going to the grocery store. You get what you want. You pay the bill. You don't thank the owner on the way out. The prices are too high anyway. You're probably complaining because the bill was so big. You don't thank him. You paid him, right? You worked, made the money, paid him. He did his work. Nobody thanks each other. You just go home and go about your business. And we think sometimes of God that way, but that's not how a relationship with God works. We don't pay off our debt to God. God paid off our debt to him when he sent the Lamb of God to take away our sin and his temple was torn down. And three days later, he was raised as proof that relationship with God now comes through faith 
in him, and the realization of God's grace should lead us to thanksgiving and awe. If you went to the grocery store and you were standing at the cash register and you've got that 250, 300, 400, 500, I don't know how big your family is, you've got that big bill racked up and you're like, I can't pay this, and the owner came up and said, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, you'd be happy with that grocery store. And you'd be sending everybody back to that grocery store because that owner did something for you you could not do for yourself. And that is a really weak analogy compared to what God has done for us How might we think differently about salvation and worship and relationship with God if we remembered that it comes by God's love and grace and not through a transaction? Rather than trying to be good for God, perhaps we'd allow God's love and his grace to change us so that we'd be good through God rather than trying to be good for God. Rather than transactional sacrifices of church attendance or singing or whatever other thing we may substitute, perhaps we would be humbled by God's love and grace enough to allow him to cleanse us to clean our hands and change us. What does Jesus want to cleanse? Consider how James, his brother, spoke about religion and cleansing. James 126 to 127, or 126 to 27, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is that, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says again a little later in the book, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Think about that for a moment. Where was God supposed to be dwelling at the time of Christ? In the temple, that's what they thought. And Jesus was zealous for the place of God's presence. Where does God's presence dwell now? in his church and in his people, and he yearns zealously and jealously over the spirit he's put in us, but he gives more grace, therefore God says, God, therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Maybe what needs to be cleansed out of of our lives is selfishness that keeps you from demonstrating love to your neighbor. Remember Jesus said that loving your neighbor is the second greatest commandment. Maybe what needs cleansing is an argumentative attitude in your life that betrays worldliness. You're critical and competitive with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You compare yourself to others and find it difficult to love them because you're jealous of them in your heart. That is, you covet You're focused on substituting your preferred forms and rituals for what we do at church. You've substituted looking religious for loving God and loving others. You're no longer drawing near to God and you're not coming with humble heart and and asking him to change you because you think the transaction is complete and you've done your part already. And when we think this way, we're sinning. We neglect the grace and the love of God. And Jesus walks into our lives, he walks into our church, which themselves 
have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. He fashions a whip and he seeks to drive these things out. And I suppose that the question is whether we let him do his work of cleansing or we approach him like the religious leaders in Jerusalem and ask him what gives him the right to drive what I love out of my life. Has worship, church attendance, singing, religion become a ritual in your life rather than a relationship with Jesus that is changing you? Do you use religion as an excuse for not obeying Jesus? Is your life marked by religion and at the same time selfishness and worldliness? Jesus wants to drive those things out of you today. Zeal for God's house means clean hands and a pure heart. It also means removing hindrances to the mission of God. You can help remove hindrances to the mission of God. I mentioned earlier that the buying and selling that was taking place was likely happening in the court of the Gentiles. This was the outermost court of the temple and a place designated for Gentiles to come into worship. It was as far as they were allowed to go into the temple. And Mark records a scripture that Jesus quoted after cleansing the temple. He says in Mark eleven seventeen, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not only the sin of the Jews, but the sin of the nations. And in fact, this was God's intention for his people, the Jews, from the very beginning. He wanted them to be a people who invited other people, other nations, to know the goodness and the mercy of God. They were to be a blessing and a light to the nations. God called them to this in Exodus. But they had so divided themselves from the Gentiles and so got caught up in this transactional worship that they had hindered Gentiles from worshiping God and had compromised their mission. And I wonder if sometimes our ritualistic religious preferences keep people from worshiping God and coming to know Jesus. I wonder if our transactional attitudes about worship sometimes lead people to believe that they don't fit because they don't have anything to offer God. But neither do you and neither do I. When I came to Christ, I did not come to him filled with all kinds of goodness that I had to give to him saying, God, you know what, it's gonna be really great for you if, you if you select me for your team. You should pick me first, God, right? Like a kickball game on the playground. No, 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 I didn't have anything to offer. I came and recognized, God, I'm, I'm mean-spirited, I'm often hypocritical, I'm negative, I'm mean to my brother, I'm, I'm, I'm angry inside, and I don't know what to do about it. And Jesus saved me from that. And he saved you too when you had nothing to offer him. He didn't, you didn't give him anything. But sometimes the way, that, the way that we present ourselves and our witness in the world is this, is this, we give off the notion that you can come transact with God if you're good enough. That if you've got enough chips stored up in your hand and maybe God will receive you, I wanna, I wanna warn you about this, particularly in a political season. Because I wonder if sometimes the way Christians talk about morality, especially in a political season, leads people to believe that if they could just attain good enough morality and had all their morals figured out, then God would receive them. Because that's how I got saved. I had all my morals figured out and I was a really great guy. No, 
No, no, no, that's not how I got saved. I got saved because God sent his son Jesus to die for me and shared the message of the gospel with me and I was saved out of those terrible things. And I know, I know we wanna be proponents of what is righteous and what is good, but I wonder if sometimes when we promote morality, we give the mistaken assumption, the mistaken notion that I'm good. I'm good and not that God is good and has changed me and he'll change you too. And I wonder if all the political rhetoric that evangelicals in particular get so caught up in at this time in our political cycle sometimes betrays to people a heart that says, if you're good enough, God will save you. If you've got enough chips stored up, God will be good to you. And that is not right. That is not the gospel I'd rather have the wrong president in office and have people hearing the good news of Jesus come to him. We're not gonna get the wrong president, God's in control, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I'd rather have the wrong president by my worldview in office and have people coming to Jesus because they understand the gospel rightly, that I can't be saved by my own morality, than have the guy I would select or girl I would select for all time. And I wonder if sometimes the way that we talk about our morality, or maybe it's the flip side. Maybe it's the other side. Maybe you talk a big game in your morality and you talk about going to church, but there's no evidence whatsoever that God has changed you. That there's been any change in your heart that you love different things now, that you want different things. And so people look at you and go, that church is just ritual for them. It's done nothing for their lives. Why should I bother? And I wonder if sometimes our ritualistic, transactional thoughts about relationship with God become a stumbling block. But the one stumbling block the Bible teaches us to put before people is the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the cross is a stumbling block and we will preach the cross and if people stumble there, then so be it. Because that's the stumbling block that God set up. But God forbid that we in our church and the way we talk or the way that we speak or the way that we act in the world would become a stumbling block for people coming to the cross. That they may stumble there or that they may live there, one or the other. But may the cross be the place where people are discerned and determined and not my life and my actions. May those point people to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I would warn you that you do not pick up a transactional idea about your relationship with God that becomes a hindrance to other people knowing the grace of God poured out through Jesus Christ on the cross, raised from the dead on the third day, building a building that took others 46 years and even longer to construct. He constructed in a much shorter period of time because he is the son of God. He's the lamb of God and he took away the sins of the world and may we point people to him. Pure worship, clean hands, and removing obstacles to people drawing near to God are ways that we can be consumed with zeal for God's house. So I suppose the last question is this. Can Jesus entrust himself to us? At the end of those two verses, I think, is a little probing. It's a little, it's a little heavy. It says, they saw the signs, they believed in him, but he did not believe in them because he knew what was in their hearts. He needed no one to tell him how people think. I wonder, as Jesus judges our thoughts and our intentions, what he sees. And if he sees pure worship, clean hands, that doesn't mean you're perfect. I'm not saying that, please don't think that. I'm just saying that you understand rightly the relationship you have with God is all of grace, 
And you worship him because you love him and not because you think you can give something to him. You worship him because he's good and not because you're good enough. And you, when you tell others through your testimony or through your words or when you talk about morality that you have a, a bent in your heart that says, I'm not just talking about morality because I'm good. I'm talking about it because God is good and he saved me out of the pit that I was in. I wonder if when Jesus judges our hearts, he sees that. Or he sees that we're trying to conduct a transaction where we buy something from God as a salve for a guilty conscience so we can go out and keep living as we always do. I really struggled with thinking about how to close today's service. I didn't know if whether to you know, just say go and sin no more or uh, um, like uh, you know, have worship at the end or whatever. I, none of those things felt awkward enough. It felt like we needed something like just truly awkward that we're not used to. And so what we're going to, I'm serious, and so what we're going to do here at the end of service is just this. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart through this message and you want to come to him and say, Lord, cleanse my heart, purify my worship, forgive me if there's anything transactional. Maybe you know already that there's just been some habits in your life. You've been going through the motions and you want to ask him to cleanse you. His grace is here. His love is here. He cleanses. He fashions a whip for his children Not so that he can punish us, but so that he can drive those things out of our lives that keep us from him. And if you're sensing that today, then all I want to ask you to do is that you would stand and for the next few moments in your own words, there will be no song, no music, no lyrics on the screen. And just for the next few moments that you would just worship Jesus in your own words and pray to him in your own words without somebody else telling you what to say, but you would just worship Jesus. Not as a transaction with him, but just because you love him. And ask him to give you clean hands, a pure heart, and to be on, on guard against anything that compromises his mission. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Heavenly Father, today we thank you so much for your word, for the actions of your son who reminds us that our worship sometimes needs to be cleansed and that in our internal thoughts and attitudes we are not automatically right just because of a label we've taken on, nor because of any kind of moral status that we claim but that we're only right with God through Christ. And we pray that as we approach you that we would not come with an attitude in which we think we can transact with you, but the humility of heart that allows us to remember that our salvation is all of your grace and that as we're changed, that's all of your grace and that as we're in mission for you, that's all of your grace. May your love be poured out on us that we might understand the depths of your love for us more because we know that as we understand your love more, it does, not lead us to, it does not lead us to poor worship. It doesn't lead us into more sin. But it leads us to transformed lives because we've seen that there is something better than sin in the love of God. We thank you for that. We thank you for your cleansing power and work through your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Go in God's grace and peace. We'll see you again as we gather for prayer on Wednesday.